This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me for the 63rd episode, we are in an hour. We have still got a lot of minutes to go, but we're over an hour in Michael Mann's 1995 crime epic, Heat. I am joined once again by, and it was almost by popular demand, he is the producer of the 80s all over, the amazing chronicle of the entire 80s, um, (laughs) the entire, every week release in the entire 80s universe um, that happened in the United States. He is a writer for the Portland Mercury, and right now he's one of the busiest... one of the busiest Star Wars aficionados in the in the online sphere because Star Wars fandom has exploded this week. Please join me in welcoming back the amazing and the much anticipated Al Pacino impression that awaits with Mr. Bobby Roberts. Hello, Bobby. <laughs> oh man, see, I was hoping I was like, I get to talk about heat for about an hour. I get to get <laughs> Star Wars morass going on, but no, you can't really escape it because Star Wars is so huge culturally that when the decades of fandom schism finally open up and start swallowing people whole, <laughs> uh, everyone sort of notices. They're like, oh, all right, so how many people of color associated with Star Wars? Have to get run off the internet before we <laughs> investigate what the hell is going on with these fans. Yeah, so look, we, that, we, ju- we, we, we just started talking about it uh, off air, and I said, Bobby, this is too good. We have to get on air. And it's we were just talking about tipping points, right? We're talking about strange tipping points, and this is your. You know, you've been in the nexus. As I saw this exploding, of course, as I instructed everyone to do and encourage everyone to do again, you've got to go at Bobby Roberts PDX is where you're going to find him. Um, and and I was just looking to like, can you please make sense of what the hell is going on? Because I am like, we already, and as we said, we already, you kind of see this behavior coming and you're purely befuddled and you think it must be just a few, you know, crackpots out there that are just absolutely lunatics. And then... You're like, oh no, this is so bad, or so sustained that it's causing people to leave the internet. <laughs> like a poor, a young girl who's a really talented emerging star doesn't even want to be on Instagram anymore. Like, how is that even possible? Yeah, no, I mean, it's so much of this is just sort of generally built into fandom and or geek culture anyway, and a lot of people don't like to acknowledge that. Nobody likes to acknowledge it because you know. Yeah. Why want to lead with that? Oh, and by the way, about five to ten percent of everyone who loves the same thing you love uh, are are total shitbags. Like, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I agree. I bet you there's some really angry hate fans out there. There's de- there's definitely some people with some issues. We could get on the podcast. Yeah, but but it's like you know, fandom and geekery, whatever nomenclature you wish to use, is is nothing more than just sort of a microcosm of larger society in general. Yes. And larger society in general is going – they have it has the same problems. If any problem that people have 
your fandom is going to have. It's going to map about one to one, or you know, maybe if you're if you're lucky, uh, it, you know, a little bit less than one to one. But you know, like, uh, you know, fandoms are just people, and any group of people gathered together for long enough for a reason flimsy enough as I like this movie. Like yeah. that's the only shared commonality is I really like this movie. You're going to end up with really terrible people. But the thing that's sort of making this, uh, you know, the star Wars example, so prominent, so pertinent aside from the fact that star Wars is huge, um, is, is fandoms sort of, uh, I don't know. Their, their reticence to call it out. Like there's a, a sense of tribalism with every fandom and yeah. tribalism sort of dictates that you accept and you put up with levels of abuse you wouldn't normally for the I'm going to put benefit in quotes benefit of the larger whole. Like you don't you don't want the the tribe to look bad. So what you'll do is you'll hush up the really terrible elements, um, ignore them, pretend they don't really exist as much as they do uh, and then continue on. But the problem is that doesn't actually fix anything. All it does is sweep negative elements under the rug or not even really under the rug because then they just push the rug up off of them. (laughs) (laughs) I was I was just going to say. In, it's it's the the as you're talking, it's really it's really pertinent to like sports have been dealing with these kind of ethical and moral quandaries around fandom for a long time. And in Australia, there's a really interesting example of there's a, a famous rugby league team in Sydney, New South Wales, where I live, called Canterbury Bulldogs. Um, they have a rabid fan base, like absolutely amazing and and rich fan base. And there was times where violence was starting to happen at games between not only between opposing teams you know you hear about it in like the uk um with uh, the crazy um uh like football fanatics um but here in australia they started going between their fans uh, between opposing fans and then their fans themselves and just doing like violent acts and the ceo at the time todd greenberg who's now like the head of the whole league um banned was banning members for life for that behavior. Yeah. No, I, like, I took, think like, that's... T- like took a stand and said, no, this is no longer acceptable. Like when they're not, they're not a little bit too far or maybe had a few drinks or whatever, like people who do violence to other fans or teams. Cause he, you know, like they're trying to, you know, reinforce the fact that this is a family club. Like people love it from birth. Um, he, he, he took a stand and it's really interesting because, you know, what may have been detrimental ended up actually galvanizing those you know, fans who were able to get along and able to not take it to those extremes to him and to the club. Um, and it's like helped, you know, helped, helped their reputation a lot. But what's weird is that with Star Wars, the ownership or the people who are running it, as in like this guy's a CEO, I think every fan on the internet, which just makes it way more problematic, thinks they own it, like thinks mm. it's theirs. And well, it's there, not. There's a very... There's a very interesting thing um, about your country that I've come to appreciate, which is uh, when bullshit pops off, you guys step on it. I <laughs> really like that. Be it a football club, be it a, a gun massacre. When something real bad pops off, you guys are like, hey, how about um, we just start banning the hell out of this awful <laughs> shit? Yeah. 
And and uh, let's see how that works. And uh, more often than not, uh, it works wonderfully. Um, you are absolutely correct. One of the bigger problems here, uh, not only with the uh, weird innate desire to protect some of the worst elements of Star Wars fandom, is the the sheer entitlement uh, on the part of some fans who believe that their right to have an opinion, their right to feel like they own this thing, their right to make yeah. a huge part of their personality around nothing more than liking movie. They feel that right supersedes almost everyone else's right to just live. And that is why Kelly Marie Tran leaves Instagram. That's why John Boyega basically had to pull all the way back from social media for a while there. Like yeah. People are talking about Kelly Marie Tran now, but don't forget when John Boyega simply popped up in a trailer in Ugh. 2014, his social media caught on fire because racists and people who had this really ill-earned sense of ownership over Star Wars couldn't handle the idea of a black man being the lead in a Star Wars film. So it's not – this isn't a new thing. It no. goes – I mean, and it goes back even farther because you look at what the internet did to uh, Hayden Christensen or what they did to Jake. Yes. Jake Lloyd really poor Jake to- Lloyd. He's a he's a he was a baby. He was like yes. a child. Like he could only act in three hour increments. You can't tease a person. I mean, you can poke fun with your friends when you're watching the movie later. And if you ever met him and you knew him, you might be able to rib him and have some fun with him. Like, and he would probably rib himself. Like he's he's an actor and knows like people who grow up as an actor know that that stuff is is sort of like it's open for it's open slather to to a certain extent, but. When he's a little kid, like, what's he get? What, what's his fault? He's acting in three-hour increments with a, one of the world's most infamous and, like, vibrant creatives. And if he's not getting the direction that he needs, it's not the kid's fault. It's, like, mm-hmm. the director. Like, but if you want to have an opinion, don't, like, shit on a poor little kid. Like, it's so ridiculous. Well, and, and the thing that I think uh, people are finally starting to, to realize and sort of starting to coalesce around because before, what sort of allowed for this weird, nasty, festering schism to continually grow was this this misconception that a fandom could be united, that everybody yeah. could come together under a unified goal. And that's just not that's not how people work typically. Like there's always going to be little splits and little fractures. The the hope is that they're not that big. And especially when it comes to something like a film fandom, yeah. it's recognizing what's important, what's not important, and then, you know, respectfully going about your day. So people are finally starting to realize that, well, maybe the goal here shouldn't be to have everyone unify under a single positive opinion about every single thing that comes out with the words star and wars attached to it. <laughs> and, I, and that's, that's the wrestle, like you would know being a culture writer as well. That's the wrestle with the Marvel fandom. And it's, it's really, really prominent because obviously Star Wars is more about reemergence in the last few years and Marvel fandom like pretty steadily for about a decade now um, has been putting out stuff. But I, I, there's been many reviews where I've, had lots of positive feedback from people when I give, when I tell them that the film is good. And there's been conversely, like some of the most commented and most hate personal and otherwise that I've gotten is when I've said that a movie that Marvel made wasn't good. And I'm like, you can't have it all guys. You can't have (laughs) it all. And to bring it back around to our Mr. Michael Mann, the great Michael Mann, there are also Michael Mann fanatics who, who w- want to tell me that Black Hat is a good movie, Bobby. And I will just not have it. I will not have it. <laughs> but see, here's the key. Here's the key, though. 
Like you're fine with a with a director, uh, a film series, uh, a person not yeah. batting one hundred percent. Like you, you don't stake your your entire being on the idea that something needs to be perfect because you are inherently yourself a good person, and you recognize that there is. <laughs> More to the worth of a person than their opinion on a movie. And I think what's happening is Star Wars fandom is is finally starting to let go of that weird pipe dream that it can bat 1,000 and that it needs to bat 1,000 to be worth something. And they're sort of embracing the idea that what's really important isn't that there's a unification behind this weird conception of a, of a, of a perfect film series, that, that what you embrace instead are good people uh, doing good work uh, and enjoying the good things that you do get out of this series. You're not supposed to like everything that comes out with the word star in wars on it. No. Not everything made is going to be made and aimed directly at you. That's entitlement. Yeah. That's yeah. vanity. And honestly, and this is where we'll really get into Michael Mann, specifically the minute we're about to talk about, that's damaged masculinity. Uh, <laughs> you brought it around. This guy is a freaking pro, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> a lot of this is dudes, and a lot of this is dudes not wanting to examine their own feelings and their own insecurities. And I believe the minute that we're going to be talking about is very much Al Pacino fronting real hard. Yeah. It's, it does through a lot of this movie. The 63rd minute, I think it goes into about... It's another two, it's about two and a half minute to three minute scene. So it's, it's going to go along and we, we only just start getting a morsel of it um, uh, as we talk with Bobby. But it's really now, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of here where everything's been inferred in Justine and Vincent's relationship to this point. Like you've seen these weird exchanges. You've seen Vincent be detached. You've now also seen what Vincent has to deal with when he's on the clock. Um, so you, you certainly get a, a, an amount of empathy there as well. But you, you, it's one of those amazing scenes where you are totally both on the side of both characters and both mm-hmm. again, and 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 in some ways you can be have a little bit of both against them as well. Like you can say, "Oh, Justine, you might have known what you're getting into," and you can also go to Vincent. You can also just not be a dick. You, you know, and, and, and what's, what I love about this scene, and we're going to, we're going to quickly watch it together, um, for you guys now. Um, and, and, uh, and Bobby and I will just refresh on the scene. Um, and you guys can have a listen, but that, what, what I love so much about this scene is I've been able to watch it. I don't know how many times I've watched this film at this point, but the amount of times I've watched this scene, I continue to like both characters equally and see their perspective and see their flaws um, and I, I, I really appreciate the candor, like just putting it all out there. Like, and, and it's respectful. It's not like a screaming match. We're going to have a conversation here. And at the end of it, we might not like each other much more than we do now, but we're going to at least feel like we're telling our truth for this moment. And so let's have a listen to the, to the scene and, uh, and I'll uh, play it for Bobby and I, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it with you guys. Bosco, take you home. I didn't want to ruin their night too. What was it? You don't want to know. I'd like to know what's behind that grim look on your face. I don't do that. You know it. Let's go. Come on. You never told me I'd be excluded. I told you when we hooked up, baby, that you were going to have to share me with all the bad people and all the ugly events on this planet. And I bought into that sharing because I love you. I love you fat. Bald, money, no money, driving a bus. I don't care. 
but you have got to be present like a normal guy some of the time. That's sharing. This is not sharing. This is leftovers. Oh, I see. What I should do is uh, come home and say, hi, honey, guess what? I walked into this house today where this junky asshole just fried his baby in a microwave because it was crying too loud. There we go. Oh, boy. You know, you know what's uh, a shame is that Diane Venora never got as much work as she should have. Oh, it, this is what – if we're talking about a common theme in this movie, every person – in this yeah. cast, needs more work, and particularly yeah. the women. When I see Diane Venora in this, and then she backs up in The Insider a few years later, like, is there a better actor that's working in the late 90s? Maybe not. Maybe, but pound for pound, maybe not. Ashley Judd? Like, Ashley Judd is, you know, that, that kind of Julia Roberts, Aaron Brockovic level five years before... Julia Roberts is Aaron Brockovich. You know what I mean? Like she's there in 95 in this film. Um, but, oh, she, Diane Venora can do well, anything, it, anything. It, it's a thing that we were talking about on 80s all over, and it's much more prominent there. Yes. Um, it, but, but it does carry over into the 90s where it's like you have a ton of great actors who essentially get stranded in roles that only very creative thinkers will pluck them out for because loads of directors, loads of writers and loads of executives, primarily executives just weren't thinking of women in the roles that they could excel in. Yes. Like, he, he, like, like you sort, you sort of have to wait for like a Michael Mann to show up and give Diane Venora a really meaty role before you're like, Oh yeah, that's right. Diane Venora can outact like 90% of this cat. <laughs> yeah. Consider yeah. who was in this cast. Right. Like, and that happens so often in the eighties. So many good actors just get lost in the sauce of the eighties because producers couldn't conceive of, you know, putting them in a different role other than mom, girlfriend, secretary. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's not until like the the late 90s uh, when Cameron sort of show. Well, the early 90s, Cameron sort of shows. But it was the late 90s when people are finally like, OK, well, maybe we can try and coast on Cameron's coattails here and, and try <laughs> it, yeah. in or in more action packed roles and such. Um, not counting Cynthia Rothrock. I, I don't want to diminish the power of Cynthia Rothrock. Yeah, I, I, I want to make sure all <laughs> are covered. I don't want people coming after me. Uh, <laughs> Not, I think it's the only time Cynthia Rothrock and Diane Venora got linked in the same podcast. I, 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 I was just going to say there was almost the, the, I felt a disturbance. <laughs> millions, millions of voices cried out in joy. Um, there's no silence here. Cynthia Rothrock and Diane Venora. Holy dooly, this is awesome. Um, but yeah, like this, I, I totally agree. There's so many of these amazing performers, and like what's kind of cool is that. Um, there've been some really great enduring television shows with the kind of American horror series and things like that, where, um, you know, some of these, some of these actors are now getting permission, um, to, to be cast in some, somewhat of an archetype or something that's like an easy fit, but also then being able to do some interesting stuff with it. Like, it's not just straight up one note stuff. It's like giving you the time and the, and the space to be able to explore it. So, um, but yeah, she's just so dynamic in this film. I, and I, I also, this is the other thing and uh, we were just t uh, touching on it before is it's so tired to see a couple fighting screaming match. And yeah. It's so refreshing. And I think it's what's even more tired now is that this is a 1995 movie and we're watching it 23 years later and still marveling at how succinct it is, but just people having a really candid conversation that hits all the beats of like a really full-on 
fight, but it's just done with respect. And in fact, that probably that probably reinforces what a what a powerful powerhouse interaction it is because yeah. <laughs> because of that. The subtlety is, I mean, just hearing it, if you're only hearing it, it still comes through. You can tell in those little inflections that both actors have, what what stresses they're putting on what syllables, um, how much is really humming just underneath the surface. But when you watch the sequence, um, the, the very subtle things each of them are doing with their face, like the emotions oh. just very just coiled underneath each little twitch of the mouth or raise of the eyebrow. And one of the things that I really appreciate about Heat and specifically Al Pacino's performance, um, I was thinking this the other day, is that um, he, his, his performance overall in Heat is sort of like he figured out how to harness the weird nervous energy that is the last scene with K in The Godfather. Yes. And stretch and stretch it out for an entire film. That weird sort of quiet and focused and then explode. Like that like that And then scene recoil. Is- and then that's what it is. It's the recoil after the explosion in the and in, yep. in this particularly is like nervous, tense, bang, recoil, and then be ready to go again. Yeah. Wow. And this and this one scene is very much him like this scene is essentially the conversation with K yes. like if it like down to the way it's lit the way it's framed like man makes it a little bit darker and a little more contrasty but it's still like these these dark brownish tones as they're sitting across from each other delivering this very even-handed dressing down of each other where she's <laughs> like I'm Going, I'm breaking out the scalpel finally. I'm going to break out the scalpel and we're going to cut into you. Yeah. And he is putting up as much armor as he – like he's going to lead with the the baby getting microwaved because he wants to make it as ugly as possible. Mm. So he have to confront the fact that he doesn't share with her. And the reason he doesn't share with her isn't to protect her. It's not that big macho bullshit that he's putting up. He doesn't want to share with her because it's his and he just doesn't want to. And, and she, what – she knows it but she can't actually say that either no and and when he does it that that's that's what i love about this minute in the connectedness of the in the connectedness of the entire scene is that at the beginning he's like oh sweetie why didn't you go home with bosco so he's trying to like play it down that he's again left her abandoned it's probably not the first time that the cops and the wives have been out and vincent's been on call and he's gone oh why didn't you go home oh no i didn't want to ruin their night too and so there's this auto deflect. He's got this very relaxed and he's like, I love his posture. He's like languid in the chair. He's like, come on, let's go, let's go. Yeah. And he's trying to diffuse it. And then when she starts going, look, I love you. <laughs> this is what makes his armor come up, which is so perfect, right? She's like, I yeah. love you. I love you bold. I love you fat. I need to share something with you. I need to know something. And at first, and where we conclude in this minute, he's like, Oh, it's too heinous. It is protective. And she's like, no, 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 that's not it. And what I love is the bravery of the to go to the next layer. No, I need it. I need yeah. it. It keeps me and sharp. It, yeah, and and the and the the reflex to bring the armor all the way up. Like all you can the way that's up. where he, his his voice starts to rise even. <laughs> and this is what I've been waiting for with your impression. I'm like, I saw this lines, I'm like, oh Bobby's gonna do us some great Pacino impressions with these lines that the armor, the hackles up. <laughs> well, he doesn't go quite as far no, um, no. as as uh, as Devil's Advocate. <laughs> like he he does this, it's the exact same line. I don't do that. Like he, he brings down, I don't do that. I don't know. 
but like in in the in the devil's advocate, I don't do that, Kevin. You know, but with this, he's he's, he's loungy, like no, I don't do that, no. And he, the, his voice starts to rise, and he starts getting, I told you, sweetie, or whatever it was. <laughs> You're going to have to share me with all the bad people. <laughs> I told you. You're going to have to share me with all the bad people. I tried. And, he, and he's like trying to like, he's so burdened by the service that he's providing her. And he's hoping that this line of shit that he's feeding her. Always <laughs> has. Oh, yes, you're the big strong man who's protecting me from the harsh realities of the world. But the truth is she knows what the harsh realities are. Oh, she, she knows. She wants to be strong for him, too. She wants to take up some of those burdens that he has. And he's just selfish about them. He's very selfish about those burdens because he honestly believes and he has built an entire life around the idea that holding on to those burdens, that letting them burn deep in his chest, that taking a flamethrower, <laughs> like doing that is what makes him Vincent Hanna. That's what makes him who he is. And he's afraid to let that go because – to share with her on the level that she wants to be shared with scares him because he's afraid it'll change who he is, that yeah. he won't be up on the edge where he has to be. He'll, like, it, he'll, uh, and, he and it's about his, his fear. It's a fear thing because what I've been thinking about Venora here, and this is why I love this scene so much because I haven't really thought about it in this way, but she wants to redefine herself. You mm-hmm. know, she's been divorced and she wants to be the strong one. She wants to be the one who's emotionally in control. And she feels like if she can help Vincent, she's not going to be the lady that needs to, you know, smoke pot and take Xanax um, and be deadened. Because when she's with him, she feels good. And she, when she's around him, she feels good and feels like she can be there for him. And as soon as he starts cutting her off, like, she's just like, this is the same thing that happened before. Like, this is me wanting to be better for us and better for you, and hopefully making you a more whole person. And that's what's inconceivable about it, because what's great both about Neil and Vincent, they've built themselves in these, like, in, in these armor, like, in, in an armor, and in a shell, in isolation, and they can play with others when they have to, um, but but letting people through or penetrate that armor, like, it's, it scares them. So it, he has to patronize. He has to be like, of all the bad people, like, he has to play that game, because if he doesn't, He's, you know, he's vulnerable and he just won't yeah. feel like that at home. He can't, for him, he can't feel vulnerable at home. He has to be yeah, alpha. And, and he straight up tells her uh, in, in the following scene, we don't get to it, uh, but he straight up tells her in the following scene that, you know, he can't share it. Like he's still yeah. patronizing her, but he tells her he can't share it because he needs to be sharp on the edge yeah. where I got to be. Like he... There, there's so much of who they are wrapped up in that isolation. And on the other hand, like you can understand why they would be that scared because when you look at the results that both men have gotten by pursuing that solitary line, yes, you can make the argument, uh, you know, in the abstract that it could have been better. Yes, but these these are old men, old tired men who have only done it the one way and they know that this way does get them their results like there is something it's sort of the same thing as you know talking to an artist who honestly believes that they have to follow a somewhat self-destructive path in order to get the best art made yes you could talk talk to another artist who's like there is no way i'm staying up 15 hours a day every day for four weeks to write the great american novel while i'm (laughs) Five gallons of bourbon straight into my liver. Like I, 
I immediately yeah. thought of Hunter S. Thompson too. I was just like, you know, you're a writer and some people are like, oh, you got to do it the Hunter S. Thompson way. And you'd look at his diet for a day and it's like cocaine, tequila, bourbon, tequila, <laughs> vodka. And you're like, no, I will be dead by 10 a.m. I'm not doing that. I'm just going to sit here and listen to some music and maybe, you know, whack away at the keyboard and see what happens. Well, and what's the 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 other really good story? And I don't even know if it's it's true or not. It's it's apocryphal, maybe. I'm not sure. But I remember it was a the, the story as I remember it was it was a conversation on the set of Marathon Man between uh, Laurence Olivier and Dustin. And Dustin. I know what you're going to say. So please tell it. I love this, and I think it is an apocryphal tale, but I love it anyway. I don't care. I want it to be true so bad. <laughs> and it's and it speaks to the uh, the idea that you you have to kill yourself in order to make great art, um, and so Hoffman is uh, you know agitated and and sweating and you know he's fully one hundred percent into the method, uh, and you know he's playing a scene where he's he's being tortured and you know it's it's doing a number on him. So he and Lawrence Olivier are, are are doing a scene, and I think the scene breaks or something, and they retire you know back behind the camera, uh, and they start talking shop. And Hoffman is obviously awed by what it is Olivier is doing in front of the camera uh, and essentially asks him like what he does to get in that frame of mind, uh, you know, how he he how he prepares for that sort of acting performance. Uh, and Olivier basically just I, I, I just pretend, you know, like <laughs> basically hitting his teeth rock uh, <laughs> and staying hours a day so he can look feel and be as into the role as possible and Lawrence Olivier uh, memorizes his lines and hits his marks and, and just says the lines <laughs> that he's memorized and I pretend that I'm a psychopath for yeah I mean what, what do you it plays yeah. like there's no one right way <laughs> no, no. Tra- I, I, tragedy of the, the tragedy of Vincent uh, is that in the tragedy of all those you know damaged artists is that they believe there is one right way and they are locked into that one right way and it it deprives them of things they actually need to be a complete human. Uh, and that's what, that's, that's what that scene is all about, this Godfather-esque scene of them shrouded by darkness, sitting down calmly trying to dissect one another, trying to autopsy one another because this relationship is dead. Yeah, what they're doing is trying to figure it, out... It's long dead. Yeah, yeah, and they're just trying to figure out why it doesn't tick anymore. And so they're sitting it, – it's two corpses, two <laughs> in, lovely, beautiful corpses on the slab trying to autopsy each other. Uh, and, and neither of them want, want the Y cut made. It's, uh, it's a very arresting scene in that way. I think it's also a scene that people um, in this film – and I've talked – you know, over the, over the series of the podcast and over talking to people, it's, it's a scene that make a lot of people – it's um, – Sometimes it agitates people. They're like, "Oh, this scene," you know, and and I and I often more the more that I talk about it, I find it it's exactly that thing we talk about where it's it's very much causing you to contend with yourself and contend with your own perhaps poor behavior sometimes or your own you know isolation for protection or your own inadequacy or your own challenges. It's such a great scene because it does. It's just so deft and you're you, the, everything about it. Pacino w- walks in. And, and you're almost embraced. It's, it's so beautiful and warm, this lovely sort of brown light. And as you said, these two be- beautifully made up people, they're wearing black. It's very staged. You know, we talk about the Kay and um, the Kay and Michael conversation, but like, you know, is there a darker scene than this? Then like, it's almost Apocalypse Now level lighting, you know, like they are just these almost detached heads in these black outfits. 
having this conversation and 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 it's just all so beautifully conceived and composed and it's just luring you in you're you are drawn to their faces every nuance every and and what's great about what's great about venora's performance is that she's so much is happening but none of it is being so hyper aggressive and so attack 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 that it's 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 putting vincent off in my mind that's how i read it i read her as like i really want you to not only listen to what I'm saying, but to hear it, mm-hmm. hear me, and hear what I'm trying to say to you right now, because, you know, I don't want us to be corpses. I want us to go further, but I think she already is wholly aware of the inevitable at that point. Yeah, I mean, and that whole segment of the film is really interesting because it's not just that scene with uh, Pacino and Venora, no. because then you move on to McKelty Williamson, or no, not McKelty Williamson. I'm sorry. Uh, Dennis oh, Haysbert, Dennis Haysbert, yeah, Haysbert, uh, and, and his opposite number, and then you move on to uh, De Niro and and, and yeah. it's, this is this is the second. There's actually a conversation before, which is and it, it's what's so bizarre is that it starts with the Wangro and prostitute, yeah, and the framing of a woman on the left and a man on the right happens in four scenes that almost yeah. go back to back with one another. You go. That very perverse and disturbing scene. You go this scene, which is sort of deeply emotional and hard cutting. You go to Don Breeden and his partner, and they're kind of wrestling with um, the, you know, the institutionalization um, effects uh, and beyond of, of, of the, the American justice system. And then you go into this fantasy land with Neil and Edie, and yeah. they're all so like wildly different but framed in such a similar way and lit differently for different moods but absolutely like if you're just talking about what the scenes contain it's like the same ingredients done doing four completely different dishes it's amazing it's absolutely amazing and in the larger structure of the story it's essentially michael mann just straight up showing you the the heart of his film it's dead center yes it's Almost all of the emotional resonance uh, and motivation for the rest of the film come from. So basically, the first hour of the film builds to these guys opening themselves up in some way or another to a woman, which is a thing they typically do not ever want to do. They don't want to do it. And then because they do it and in different ways that they do it, the movie then takes off from there. So it's, it's, it's sort of it's dead center. It's resolving the two halves of the film. Uh, pro- providing like the ending to the first half and being the engine for how the second half will continue. Um, and then the four ways in which it plays out, the four very different ways, like you explained, it's, you know, I mean, even if, if you wanted to take it this film school thesis, I mean, there's four chambers to a heart. Like, <laughs> oh, that is so good. That is so good, Bobby. I have no doubt, no doubt that Michael Mann absolutely intended for this <laughs> segment of his screenplay to essentially be the beating heart of his film. <laughs> Drops it in. Like, it's a film with guns uh, and manly men doing manly things and the code and all the things that Michael Mann is known for. But he makes sure to stop for about 20 minutes, four scenes, five minutes each, thum, thunks it down dead center of his script, and it's just men talking to women. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, that's that's part of the reason this film is as resonant as it is, even if people don't quite recognize it. And I think it's I think it's partially because of what you just said, like you have to sort of I mean, if you're projecting yourself into any of these characters, 
any one of these characters is then going to make you confront yourself and the way you might act in that situation. Um, and, you know, the sympathies that you freely give to one character when you rewatch this movie, knowing what you know, you might not be so eager to give those sympathies up to the one you might then start empathizing with the other and it makes you sort of investigate yourself um and that's all you want out of a great piece of art is something to come away with that you can look at yourself something good that you can take out of a film and then put out into the larger world through your own actions if you can learn something empathetic from a film and then provide that empathy to other people then the movie is completely justified in existing. Not that it needs justification to exist, but, but you know you've made a really good piece of art if you can say this movie gave me empathy and it allowed me to give that empathy to others in the real world where it matters more. And and uh, and a movie that can evolve and ch- and and charge you up emotionally along those different lines. So like watching it the first time, wholly surrendering. Your, you know, your perspective or wholly surrendering your sort of your own values on a, on a, the, on the character that al- aligns to you the most or you feel like you want to be, you're projecting yourself into that person. But like what, what I love about this scene so in particular and the movie larger is that the more that I watch it, the more I just watch the peripheral, like I watch these peripheral characters and, I, and I'm deeply empathetic about their lives and them being like drawn into this maelstrom. And what I love about Diane Venora's one is that it's the most... Probably Diane Venora's scene and the and the Donald Breeden scene that we've got coming up is that the women in both of those scenes are so wholly aware of the flaws of their partners mm-hmm. and love them unequivocally for it, and they and yeah. they're really trying, like they're they're doing everything that they can to just try and bring them back from the brink that they know is going to happen. And so now, even especially the Breeden scene that's coming up, and I'll talk more about it when we get there to it with the next guest, but. Like that scene where she's like, I'm proud of you. And, and he's like, why are you proud of me? Like she's – because you're, you haven't just reflexively gone back to the life that you could so easily do. Um, but unfortunately in that moment, you know, <laughs> it, it kind of dials it up for the fact that he is going to go back to that life. It is going to happen. And it's the same with this. Like, like you said, they're two corpses. It's done. It's been dissected. It's, it's – there it is. Yeah, and and that that pride and also that fear come together to sort of drive you back to the familiar, back to the ways that you the 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 question of control comes up essentially. Like it, yeah. it's I could be better, but I would have to step out of my safety zone and I have to <laughs> and I give up control, and I cannot do that. I will not do that. No. Uh, it's it's going to kill me. Um, but I will not do that. I need that control um, because, you know, so much of life uh, is chaotic and hectic and, and, and messed up. And if you get a little grip on something that makes you feel like you know how it's supposed to work, of course you treasure that. Yes. Of course you give that a lot of your time and your energy and your emotion because it makes you feel like you have inherent worth, like you figured it out, like through the strength of your work. You are now important. The world has changed because of you and your actions. Um, and, and these women are sort of shaking that, that worldview a little bit and showing them that there could be more. And it, and it, and it freaks them out. It's like explorers uh, being told the world is round. It's like, no, no, no. I figured out this whole flat thing. <laughs> oh, don't start the flat earthers. We've already targeted Star Wars. Bobby. <laughs> 
place. <laughs> uh, flat earthers are safe to mock openly. Oh, I, no, if, how, if you're a flat earther, just stop. Like, I don't have anything else to say. Just stop. <laughs> Come on. Seriously. I can't imagine you've got any flat earthers listening. I mean, although this might be good. We might be flushing them out. Flush, you might get a- Flush them out. Oh, man. <laughs> Please stop. Now, now I, I'm so. I'm eat impersonation. Actually, you know what was funny. Uh, you were mentioning the uh, the apocalypse now sort of scene. Yes. And the first thing I heard was in my head was like Al Pacino doing the doing snail. That's a straight razor. <laughs> I saw a snail. <laughs> across the straight razor. Are you listening to me? Moving <laughs> across a straight razor. Ooh-ah. Yeah. Oh God! <laughs> right now. As like I've been as we've been talking, we're recording this. My my phone notifications popped up because uh, I follow the new, movie news site Dark Horizons, who you know the editor in chief, Mr. Garth Franklin, has been on the show many times. And just Ooh. breaking today, Al Pacino joins Tarantino's Hollywood. Oh, Jesus, who's he playing? Did it, I, did it say? I'm going to look it up while we're talking. I would never normally do this, but I was like. What is the universe like talking to us again? Like, um, what is going on? So here we are. So um, Quentin Tarantino, if you haven't heard, is doing a movie called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for Sony Pictures. It is uh, starring uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt as a sort of um, a leading actor and his stand-in or slash stunt double um, who are getting on some adventures around the time of the Hollywood Manson era. It is casting real life, uh, casting sort of people playing real life roles as well as these guys who are kind of um, fictional characters, sort of in. Uh, the inglorious bastard style of uh, of, of his films, um, and now let's see if we've got a specific. Uh, no, the role's unspecified at this time. I've just gone into the story, so but that would mean he's got you know De Niro and Jackie Brown, and now Pacino in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and oh, I can't wait to see. I mean, that, I mean seriously, I, yeah. I can't wait to see that. That's amazing. That's I'm not- never going to forget that. I'm going to go back and listen to this podcast myself. Not just for the editing purposes, but I'm going to see if I can cut out Bobby's doing a snail on a straight razor. The horror. The horror. It's horrible. I'm tired. It's very horrible. Oh, man. Well, yeah, it's 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 a it's that's nuts. I'm I'm real. I'm real interested to see who he could possibly be playing because you got Margot Robbie playing uh, uh, Sharon Tate, if I remember correctly. I think that came out. Garth's probably got the whole cast list up if you're looking at it because Garth Franklin, absolute Garth Franklin, absolute legend of the online film news scene. He he's, he's he been was around, around. twenty one. Dark Horizons has been in existence for twenty one years. Nuts, man. That's crazy. And also one of the only movie news sites, obviously that hasn't gone under uh, or turfed itself or spat out a contributor who was harmful to society. <laughs> Almost never got anything wrong. As a matter of fact, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know if Garth has – like his his success rate on reporting on news before it happens is rock solid. Um, yeah. I, I'm, yeah, I've, I've got – as a matter of fact, I work in a newspaper. My editor, my film editor 
one of the only movie news sites he still has in his bookmarks is Dark Horizons. Oh, there you go. And I said to Garth, this was funny. We were walking out of a movie that we're seeing last night at Sydney Film Festival. We'll walk out, and we're, we're, I don't know what we were talking about. We are talking about biopics and things like that. We maybe even were talking about this film before the Pacino casting. Um, and and Garth's like, oh, what would we do if we like, what would we do if we we're doing a uh, a biopic on my on my life? I'm like, you're the only person in the world that's ever made an ethical news site. <laughs> I go, it'd be a boring biopic. <laughs> Just have to stop. It's boring. Like you know, let's go to your personal life. It's way way funner. Like now, you... starring Bob Newhart, <laughs> Arthur Franklin. Uh, the most boring website in history, I, and it's just uh, oh, what you do your job really well, and you tell the news, and you're ethical. Boring. We need a we need a controversy. Come on, man, sort it out. Oh, um, so Margot Robbie, Dakota Fanning, Damian Lewis as Steve McQueen, um, which is a huge one. Um, Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, and Luke Perry also star in the film. It's going to be coming out August ninth, twenty nineteen. Um, so yeah, that's a that's an amazing one. Yeah. Oh man. So anyway, Guys, back to heat. Look, back to heat. Look, we're gonna we're gonna finish up because I've had an absolute blast, and I don't know if I can handle any more of uh, uh, Bobby's Al Pacino impression without dying laughing again on this podcast, Bobby. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being a part of the show once again. It has been an absolute blast. Um, I'm absolutely going to call you back one more time. I have to. I'm sorry. Um, I, I know you might get sick of talking to to us about heat, but I'm guaranteeing you'll be back by popular demand once again. No, I uh, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I love talking about this movie, and I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to bring the Pacino impression out. Guns blazing! Come on! <laughs> Ah! Oh man, it, it's very. I can't do quiet Pacino from the no. early seventies. Talking about Godfather, and there's two very separate Pacinos. And I think you you draw the line. I might have said this before in the last uh, appearance, but you sort of draw the line uh, before he gets the Oscar for Set of a Woman. Yes, and after he gets the Oscar because once he gets the Oscar for Set of a Woman, that's the industry telling him, "Hey, you sounding like Foghorn Leghorn." <laughs> that gets you rewarded. And I think after, as soon as they gave him the statue for that, he's like, oh, I guess I just do this all the time now. Ah! I'll, I'll, I'll quiet. Like he goes quiet, loud, quiet, like a like a Melvin song or uh, or like bonnet song, <laughs> like a Melvin. So, uh, Ali, are you doing the Melvin this time? Yep, yep. Okay, cool. That's fine. Sound recorders, just <laughs> pull the mics back a whisker because he's gonna go. <laughs> he's gonna go crazy. Yeah, I I do I do miss a quiet Pacino because you talk about. The arc of that role, that Michael, like his, you know, his most iconic role, and obviously the the film that you know they were both, you know, De Niro and Pacino were sort of telling this wonderful parallel story. Um, yeah, I I miss. I would love to see an older Pacino do a really quiet and delicate Pacino yeah. because it's right. it's so good. He's so good. Dog Day, Serpico, oh, yeah. holy shamoli, Michael. Well, and then maybe maybe that's. Oh. <laughs> It seems weird to to think that that's what Tarantino might have in store for Maybe. him. Maybe. It doesn't typically go in for very quiet, reserved performances. But on the other hand, um, they do show up in his films. So maybe that's what he's doing with uh, with Al. I can't imagine he's going to have Al come in and go, go straight up. Al. No way. No. He's no. there for something special, I think. 
Yeah. Well, cool. well, Bobby, thank you so much again for being a part of the show. At Bobby Roberts PDX on the Twitters, you can find Bobby all over the place. 80s all over. Subscribe, rate, and review. 80sallover.com is where you can go there. Um, and also, there's a Patreon for the guys. And I think uh, that Scott um, is is now doing uh, uh, some paid reviews that are on that site. So you can pay like 99 cents for some of his reviews. So if you do like Scott, who's great, check that out too. Um, but Bobby, um, if you're in, uh, um, uh, in Portland, you can read them in the paper um so uh, um so enjoy that um thank you so much to garth franklin for our website design paul davies for our music bobby thank you for that amazing impression it's just going to be killing me all day thank you thank you thank you once again for being a part of one hit minute